Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Hi everyone, this is the sixth episode of the Traveling Image Makers podcast and I'm your host, Ugo Chai. It was great to interview all the guests for the previous episodes. And our audience is growing and I hope we are getting better. But if you want to see us grow even more and get even better, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us. And one is to, to leave us feedback in the form of a review on iTunes. Give us a rating, give us a review, tell us what we can do better or what we are doing well so far. And the other thing is uh, share this uh, show with your friends over social media. Use Twitter, Facebook, Google+. Uh, Give us a link, please. Uh, That will help us a lot. And I will be forever grateful to you. As they say, sharing is caring. So we come to my guest for this episode. Who doesn't need a lot of introduction? He's a photographer, a traveler, an educator, a podcaster who has 36 books in his name, sometimes referred to as the godfather of photography. Please welcome Mr. Rick Salmon from beautiful Croton on Hudson, New York. Hello, Rick. How are you doing? Well, I am a little chilly here in uh, Croton on Hudson, New York. I wish I was in a warmer place, uh, but I'm doing great. Uh, what, do, what do you mean, chilly? How cold well, is it there? Well, uh, in Fahrenheit, it was like minus three this morning. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like <laughs> minus 20 Celsius or, or something, it, I guess. Yeah, it, it's really cold. But it's, it's an honor to be on your show. Thank you. You're doing great work. I see the workshops that you're doing. And, you know, you know, we were just talking before we started the recording that maybe we could do a, a workshop together over there, which would be awesome. I, I would love to do a workshop over there with you. Th- that would be great. And uh, it's a great honor and a great pleasure for, for me to have you here. And I hope that maybe one day we will be able to, to meet in person. But f- first of all, for... The few people who don't know you and are listening to this, can you give us a, a, brief, a brief introduction <laughs> about you? Who is Rick Salmon? Well, sure. Basically, my number one job is I'm a dad. <laughs> even, even even though my son's uh, almost 25 years old, this is still my main job. He was home for the holidays, and we had we had a great time. But you know, I'm a travel photographer, and I have uh, 36 books. Uh, my latest book is called uh, Creative Visualization for Photographers. Uh, it's available all around the world and on Amazon, on Kindle, and uh, the print versions. Uh, so I have 36 books uh, on Kelby training. I have 13 classes. I give uh, seminars, uh, I think this year, 2016, I have about 15 or 16 seminars uh, around the country, doing about seven uh, workshops. Uh, and what else do I do? I, oh, I blog every day. So I, and I play guitar. I play guitar every day and keyboard. So I like to keep busy. So I got to know you first through the Kelby One training videos that you did, which were when I was uh, subscribed to Kelby One, I think I watched all of your videos. They were really great. And then I'm a subscriber to your Digital Photo Experience podcast with your friend uh, Juan Pons that you do. Yes. And it's uh, it's a great resource. Uh, I love listening to it every week. Well, we love teaching. And, uh, you know, I think today it's all about uh, education, online education. This is really where it's at. Uh, 
all the top professionals I know are involved in online training. So my advice to uh, professionals who are just, you know, getting into this, uh, just became a professional, is, you know, consider online training. It's really uh, a wonderful way to teach and share and to uh, have an extra source of income. Yeah, definitely. Completely agree. Anyway, let, let's talk a bit about travel, if you want. Um, sure. You, you said you are a travel photographer. So how often do you do you travel? For well, photography specifically, I mean, just not maybe not counting uh, the travels you do for workshops or uh, teaching uh, events and so on. Right. Well, I uh, travel, you know, quite frequently this year. You know, my workshops are taking me to places around the country. We're going to Miami South Beach, which is beautiful, uh, Mount Rainier out west. Um, we're going to Fossil Rim Wildlife Center where they have great uh Wildlife, and I'm doing a workshop in Botswana and South Africa. But before I'm going to Botswana and South Africa, uh, my wife and I we go on ourselves, so we shoot. And the same thing in South Beach, we go before and we shoot, and we take um, probably take two big uh, personal trips a year. This year we're going to southern India on a train, which is going to be really cool, and we're going to Sri Lanka. So if any of your listeners I've been to Sri Lanka. I'd love to hear from them and get some tips because uh, this is not a place a lot of people, a lot of photographers go to. So Sri Lanka, I think, is going to be awesome. So I do travel a lot, and it's uh, you know traveling is a great education to see how other people uh, you know live and what's important to other people, especially when it comes to the religions and the cultures. So uh, what's uh, your next trip? Would be Botswana or India? Well, the next trip is India. India uh, okay. uh, we're going to be uh, there in, I don't know when this is coming out, but we're going to be there in February. So yeah. it's still going to be hot. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, my goal there is to get great people pictures. And, you know, I love, I just love photographing, you know, the different people and different cultures and the different customs. It's uh, it's just it's just the thing I really love to do. Yeah, I love the landscapes, you know, and I love the HDR and I love photographing cities, the cityscapes and the... And seascapes, but it's the people that I really love to photograph. Yeah, speaking of people, uh, do you generally arrange your shoots in advance, like you have some local contacts and that find you quote-unquote models, or do you rather like to, to shoot uh, just <coughs> random people on the street that you meet and you just ask them, can I take your picture? How does, how does it work in Sure. Good question. Uh, I, I line up things in advance. So like in Sri Lanka, where we're going there, I'm, I'm talking to the tour operator there and I say, I just need the best guide you could possibly find. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'll go around with the best guide and uh, he or she will help me, you know, photograph uh, the people or or get me into places that, you know, like if I'm in the rainforest in Brazil, you know, I'd never go into, <laughs> I never would go into or probably have access to some of these villages without a great guide. So having a good guide is so important. And, you know, in Sri Lanka, you know, I don't speak the language. If I'm in Mongolia, I don't speak, <laughs> I don't speak the language. So having that guide to, you know, ask someone, I never, I never, uh, photograph someone, you know, just, you know, with a telephoto lens, you know, with like trying to sneak a shot. I always ask permission. Yeah, so they're typically portraits that you do. Uh, yes, I love travel portraiture. But, you know, it could be an environmental portrait. <clears throat> For example, I was in Myanmar, uh, Burma, which used to be called Burma. Now it's called Myanmar. And we're in the silk factory. And I took a, a portrait of this beautiful woman. She was uh, weaving some silk. But uh, then I took what I call the environmental portrait, where it looks like I'm just in there, like behind the scenes shooting. So first, you know, I always do that. I always take the portrait, the head and shoulder shot, and then I always take what's called the environmental portrait, which shows the subject in his or her environment, which tells more of a story than just a portrait, which could be taken in my backyard. 
Yeah, it, it, you made me remember of a, one of my favorite photographs that I took in a, in a similar situation. It was in Morocco a couple of years ago, and we went to a carpet factory. So there were women weaving carpets, not, not silk, but wool. And um, I asked them for a, for a picture. I snapped a, a couple, but maybe at the time I wasn't uh, thinking about photography and the possibilities as you do, because you said you would take a head and shoulder and an environmental portrait and right. try to work the situation probably better than I did. I limited myself to uh, head and shoulder portraits. I could have taken so much more. So I think that's a, that's a very important suggestion for, for people, I think, to, for photographers to, to work the situation, to, to explore the various possibilities. Well, I'm looking at your picture here on Skype, and you know you're you're sitting on these steps in Morocco in the blue city, the blue steps, the blue background. You have the lights there. This is a, a very nice environmental portrait. It shows you in the environment. And if I if I took the shot, you know, just a head and shoulder shot against the blue wall, it could be taken, you know, maybe on some graffiti wall in Brooklyn here in New York. <laughs> so so I think that that environmental shot, and, and you know, my key when I take the environmental shot usually is to get everything in the scene in focus so it looks like it looks to my eyes and in your shot it looks kind of like that too so i try to do that you know shoot at a small aperture use a semi-wide angle lens and focus one third into the scene so you know it looks as though it looks to my eyes mm -hmm. whereas with the portrait you might want to put the background slightly out of focus so the subject pops out of the frame a little so it's more of an environmental portrait that shows a, a little bit more of the the culture of the place instead of a just a yes. beauty portrait as you would say right it's, right it's more important for for travel reportage to have uh, some context i guess you know when i share this with i'm just listening to you when i share this with my listeners they're going to love your, your your accent but you don't have an <laughs> accent there so i don't know if your listeners are going to like my new york accent or not but <laughs> i'm really enjoying listening to you <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> sure um so for your next trip to, to India and Sri Lanka, that's how long is that going to be? Uh, each trip is about two weeks. Two and weeks. I, I leave about two weeks to get over jet lag and to get, you know, because you're tired. <laughs> you know, Sri Lanka is pretty far away from New York and India is pretty far away, too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're tired, you make mistakes. You might leave, you know, I've seen people leave tripods. I've seen people leave lenses. So I, I, I leave time so I can get used to the... Uh, get used to the uh, destination. And then, you know, one, one tip that uh, I always tell people, they say, what's your best travel tip? I say, you really want to feel good. So you have to wear like comfortable shoes. You have to dress comfortably and you have to take the right medicines. Like for uh, India and Botswana, South Africa, I'm taking malaria medicine, right? Mm -hmm. Which is expensive, but you have to time this exactly right. I'm taking the typhoid pills, and I just learned that typhoid pills last five years where the typhoid shot only lasts two years. So traveling, you know, this whole medicine thing, travel medicine is very, very important. The last thing you want to do is uh, spend uh, time and money going to a place and be sick. In terms of packing, do you pack more photo gear or more clothes and shoes? I, well, I always carry all my photo gear, and my wife tra travels with me on these uh, big international trips. So we carry everything we need. Mm -hmm. So in case a bag is lost or delayed, we, we can still shoot. <laughs> you know, I could buy shoes. I could buy the other stuff. So we carry everything. But, well, you know, I, I, I try to travel smart. 
so if I'm going to, you know, the blue city where you are in your Skype picture, I'm not going to bring, I don't think I'm going to bring my 100 to 400 millimeter mm -hmm. image stabilization lens. I might bring my 70 to 200. So <clears throat> I'm going to pack for the situation. I'm going <clears> to <throat> try to pack as light as possible, but I'm always going to bring a backup, like two bodies in case something happens to one body. Yeah, which is not which is not impossible. And you would bring the 100 to 400 to Botswana, maybe. Yeah, oh, I would definitely bring that to Botswana. I'd bring the 70 to 300. But if I'm shooting around the city, I probably would only bring the 17 to 40, the 24 to 105, and uh, 17 to 40, uh, 24 to 105, and probably the 70 to 300. Yeah, just just so people know, and it's not meant to be a commercial, but we are talking about Canon equipment. Yeah, yeah, case, I'm a Canon so. Explorer of Light. I'm honored to be a Canon Explorer so, of Light. So, I think so people, your... yeah, sorry, can refer and what, what lenses you are talking right. about. Right. Yeah, because they're different focal lengths by different yeah. camera manufacturers. Um, okay, so uh, do you bring tripe flashes, extra lights? Well, again, you know, whatever question anyone asks me, <laughs> this is kind of funny. The answer is it depends. <laughs> so it depends. Like uh, going to, uh, I was talking to someone yesterday uh, who's going to Tanzania, and that we were talking about a flash. And I don't think I'm, I said you don't really need a flash. Bring an extra lens because you know the animals are not going to be that close. You know, you could use. There's a device that you could put on your flash called a better beamer which extends the flash range of the uh, of the speed light, the range of the speed light. But I don't think you really need a flash. So if I'm going on a safari, I'm not going to bring a flash. If I'm going to the Blue City, I'm definitely going to bring a flash. I'm going to bring a, uh, and a, a diffuser and a reflector. And I, I would probably all the time bounce, even if the flash is on the camera, bounce that flash into the reflector to soften the light. So once you have decided what you want to bring and you have right. packed it in your bags and so on, how do you ensure that going through airport check-in and security goes as smooth and uh, as quickly as possible, if you have any tips about this? Well, uh, as far as going through, basically, you know, you're, you're there with all your lenses, you're there with your cameras, with your computers and all your cables and your chargers, and you're actually the memory cards. Have you seen, you, you know these wallets that you could put like 12 memory cards, compact flash cards? These set off the uh, the the X-ray machines because they can't see through them. So I've had these wallets opened up with the cards. So I think the key is just to be just to be as patient as possible. Mm -hmm. But you never know. Do you know? Have you seen these? It's called a blower brush, uh, and ba actually just called a blower. And you used to have a brush on the end. So to clean the digital sensor, it has like this rubber bulb on it, right? Mm -hmm. Have you seen these, right? Yeah, they're like the rocket blower. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's called a rocket blower because it looks like a rocket. Uh, it's a black bulb. It has little things sticking out. And at the end, it has these blades on it like the, the bottom of a, yep. of a rocket, you know, for stabilization. So get this. I'm going through, coming back from Mexico and... <laughs> And the security agents took it away from me because they thought it looked like a hand grenade. Yeah. <laughs> it's rubber. <laughs> it's rubber. <laughs> it's rubber. But I mean, they it, took it away. Yeah. It, it wouldn't even show up through x-ray probably. No, but they opened it they and they it, saw yeah. it. So that that was just kind of uh, kind of funny. But I think the key is to be patient. And what I do, actually, this is a good tip. You know, you have to take your laptop out if you don't have yeah. a, P, a TSA pre-check. What I do is I put my... If I have like the carry-ons, I put every carry-on on the on the conveyor belt first, 
and in that little tray, I put my laptop in last. And this is why. Because when you're going through that machine, you know, my, my biggest nightmare is to have this laptop, you know, go through and fall off onto the ground because mm-hmm. not all of the conveyor systems, you know, those rollers at the end have guards on the, you know, metal guards on the side. So I put that through last. So hopefully I'm out through that uh, scanning machine before the laptop comes through. So uh-huh. I always put, make sure that's going through last. No, oh, yeah, you know, I use the opposite strategy. You because, put it through first. Yeah, no, the, the reason is why I'm a bit uh, absent-minded, maybe at times. <laughs> so I'm always worried that I will leave the laptop there. Uh, <laughs> so if the laptop well, comes first, I take it in my hand, then the bag comes, and then I put the laptop back into the bag. I'm always worried that if the bag comes first, I will pick up the bag, close it, go. and get a go away with the laptop still on the belt. <laughs> yeah, because it is stressful, right? It is stressful. It is, it is. You know. uh, what I'm mis- what I forgot to to do what can happen here is it is stressful. Another, um, if I may add a tip, I had, this happened sure. to me recently because I think the regulations changed a bit. So now uh, they made it harder or even impossible to put uh, lithium-ion batteries into your checkered luggage. Uh, yep. I used to put extra batteries in my checkered luggage, maybe just to have the carry-on lighter. And they stopped it. And I said, do you have batteries in there? And I said, "Mm, yeah, I think so. Can you take them out? So I had to take the bags, the the batteries out of the checkered bags at the check-in counter. Yeah. Because they had batteries. So that happened to me last year. It had never happened before. So... Well, I was was in India once and I had AA batteries, right? Mm -hmm. These are the pen light batteries. And I had them in my speed lights, my two speed lights. They made me take them out of my mm-hmm. – this is in India at a local airport. Made me take them out of my speed lights and put them in my check baggage because they thought, I, you know, I could hook them up and get some power and do something. So mm-hmm. you just have to be prepared for everything. But the key is to be patient and not to lose your temper. Yeah, absolutely. Which I did once and <laughs> it was not a good thing. <laughs> I, I had to hold my temper recently flying through Edinburgh Airport in Scotland because they had a new security system, so everything was going slower than usual. And there were like uh, 10 big signs on the walls that said, do not take your liquids out of your bags, take your laptops out of your bags. And then you have three people in the, in the queue in front of you, and the security agents are opening their bags and they're picking up, oh, there's a laptop here. Oh, there's a bottle here. What is this? This is liquid? <laughs> <laughs> I said, those people don't even read those signs. They were printed like six feet big. Yeah, <laughs> still they didn't read those. So yeah, I had to be very patient. <laughs> yeah, you gotta be. You gotta be. Okay, so um, when you are traveling and when you are at a destination and a great place, are you one of those photographers who limit themselves to shooting only at the golden hour or blue hour? Oh, or absolutely like not. To, to exploit the, the whole range you know, I, of you know, People used to say that, you know, I only shoot, you know, I never take a picture between 10 and 2, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Well, you know, there are great opportunities. You know, first of all, you could work in the shade, right? Right. Uh, second of all, you could use, if you're photographing a person, a reflector and a diffuser, a daylight fill-in or daylight, uh, or use daylight fill-in flash. And what the reflector and the diffuser, 
diffuser and the flash have in common is they, they all compress the brightness range of the scene, so you can get rid of the shadows. And of course, uh, with today's plugins, you could, and well, just with Lightroom too, in Photoshop, you could open up the shadows, right? And sometimes that harsh light is nice, and of course, infrared is good any time of day. So I definitely don't do that. I, I do love to do most of my shooting uh, in the early morning and late afternoon. And I do, when I'm away, take a nap every afternoon because mm -hmm. I'm up so early and stay out late. But I don't limit myself uh, for sure. I limit myself a bit when I'm traveling with the family. Oh, yeah. Because I, then I might go out early in the morning, do a sunrise shoot, then join the family for breakfast. And then we take a walk uh, through a city or someplace. And I, I don't want to have them stop at every corner because I saw something nice to photograph. I just tend to slow down my photography a bit during those hours because I've already reserved some, some time for myself during the rest of the day. Cool. Um, another question is, uh, what would you tell somebody who is not sure whether to take a photography workshop on location? Well, what would be the benefits of coming to to a photography workshop, one of yours or one of your colleagues? Or one of yours, right. <laughs> well, you. the thing is, there's a lot of benefits to shooting, going on a workshop. One, you're going to be with other photographers, and they, they all have the, the same goal in mind, to get great pictures. So you, you don't mind getting up every day for like seven or eight or ten days in a row, uh, getting up for the sunrise, like if I were down in Miami by myself, you know, I probably wouldn't do that. But if I'm leading a workshop, I have to do it. So everyone, you know, is driven to get good pictures. A, B, you learn from the other photographers. You know, I'm a, I might be on the workshop on the beach talking about this and that. And another photographer says, why don't we try this? So you learn from the other photographers. So you learn about shooting, but you also learn about photo processing. And I know on my workshops, that's a very big part of it. Because today, you know, digital photography for me is probably, I was going to say a 50-50 deal, 50% uh, image capture, 50% image processing, but it's probably way more image processing like it was for Ansel Adams and Car uh, Shavadawa, who was the Ansel Adams of portraiture. So processing is so, so very, very important. So this is, this is you know, I think these are some of the benefits of, of going on a workshop, but I would suggest if you go on a workshop, do a research on the pro, because there are pros out there who just lead workshops so they could get uh, their own pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I know one guy, and actually I was on one of his workshops, and he was in the best spot every time for the best pictures of the horses, like running at us, and that that was his goal. So I and I would also com say compare prices. Like our my, the workshops that I do are probably the best. And I could say this probably, with all honesty, probably the best priced, best valued workshops uh, in the United States because we just, my wife and I, we want to have fun and we, we offer workshops to people who are not gazillionaires. <laughs> and, and because there are other benefits, then people come back and back and back. I know people who, you know, bang people up front for like tons of money. Uh, and then the, the people never go on the workshops again. So I try to build a long-term relationship, not only with people on the workshops, with people on, who come to my seminars, and with people online. It's that relationship that is so very, very important. So you, you lead workshops together with your wife. I didn't know that. Uh, mostly mm -hmm. uh, I do with her. Now we do. 
But I do workshops for some other people also. But uh, you know what's nice about having working working with someone, you know, our responsibilities are divided. Like I'm in charge of photography and she's in charge of logistics. Mm -hmm. So. You know, it just makes it a lot easier. I don't have to worry about if someone uh, can't park in a location or if uh, they're late checking in. I'm just in charge of the photography. So I think my advice would be, you know, work with someone and try to divide the responsibilities like that. Yeah, I guess logistics is very, very important for... Well, it is. People don't want to be wasting time driving around, finding a parking spot, you know, missing the light, you know. Uh, this is one thing that you definitely don't want to do. You don't want to miss the great light because someone overslept. And on my workshops, the first thing I say is uh, I'm not strict about anything except time. If I say we're leaving at 6, we're leaving at 6, and that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, here's my cell phone number because it's not fair to the other 10 or 12 people on the workshop if you're waiting for somebody. Yeah, Absolutely. Have you got any tips for aspiring travel photographers, especially when it comes to making a dent or being recognized and seen now, especially nowadays that we have so so many people with cameras and everybody has an Instagram account about travel photography. How do you (laughs) how do you stand out from the crowd? Well, I have to admit today it's a lot harder. I know I know one photographer who started out in another profession, and he became a photographer, wrote a book, had a podcast, and now he went back to the other profession, because it's so hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so hard. Uh, people like me who have been around for a while, you know, I've diversified. So, you know, I have the workshops, I have the seminars, I have the books, I have apps, I have online training. You know, I have all this, I have an online store where I sell uh, online classes, and I actually have three places where I do online classes. So, you know, diversifying, I think, is very important. But I would say follow your heart. You know, if you want to be a travel photographer and, you know, if you live in New York or if you live in, you know, Milan or wherever, go out by yourself and play travel photographer. Pretend you're a travel photographer and put together a portfolio of what's close to you because you're probably good at that. You know, I do a workshop every year called Rick's Backyard Workshop where I take people to you know, locations basically in my backyard. It might be, you know, 20 miles away, but I call it my backyard workshop because I've gotten good at photographing locally. So I would say start out doing local workshops um, and for not a lot of money. Start out doing the local workshops and then, you know, broaden your scope. But follow your heart and never give up. And it can be discouraging, but <laughs> you know what I tell people? Being a, being a travel photographer it's kind of like being on a roller coaster. Uh, the highs are high and the lows are lows. But man, oh man, being on that roller coaster is way better than being on the merry-go-round. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also hear you do a lot of, uh, you dedicate a lot of time to, to social media. And that's, that's probably nowadays essential to, to get some visibility. Do you have any, any tips? What are your favorite networks, your favorite channels? Well, first of all, the, you know, I have a lot of books. So the expression used to be publish or perish, right? Mm-hmm. You have to publish, otherwise, you know, you're going to perish. You're going to be forgotten. Today, I believe the expression is, uh, and I believe in this, socialize or succumb, 
meaning you have to socialize. You have to be out there. So, you know, you mentioned Instagram. Younger people are in, into Instagram and Pinterest, <laughs> which are good. I have an Instagram, Instagram account, but I also use Facebook and Twitter. I had high hopes for Google+. I really did. You know, I have like 700,000 people there, but I don't followers, but I'm not sure that all those people are really interested in photography. So Facebook, I think probably for me is the most important. Yeah, I've had the same hopes for, for Google+. Plus. I right, think. didn't you? It, you know, it came out, it's great for photography, designed for photographers, and, you know, but, you know, my wife says that it's a great place for people to practice their English. <laughs> like, I look, I look <laughs> at the, con really, I look at the comments of my pictures, and they, some of them make zero sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I you know. know. I have, uh, and I, uh, I have like 75,000 followers there right now, so basically one-tenth the number you have, but, there are many more than my followers on Facebook or Twitter combined um, many times over. And and still I'm not getting much of an engagement, unfortunately. I mean, I the, the, the good thing about Google Plus is that I'm, I made a really uh, great friends there. People who have later met in real life, doing photo walks together, going to places. That's That was the, the best part of Google Plus. But... That's probably a hundred people. What about the other seventy-four thousand nine hundred? Right. I don't know who they are. I don't know what they do or what they care about because they never show up. <laughs> right, right. Funny. Um, so, any any other tips, suggestions, or things you you would like to add? Uh, no, I think we covered a lot of things. Uh, just uh, you know, technically, <coughs> you know. I, I tell people you have to shoot raw files and you have to shoot with your histogram on and your highlight alert activated because that's your in-camera light meter. And these are such great, great uh, tools to help us get the best in-camera exposure. So technically, you know, we have to do that. But uh, emotionally, well, we have to remember that the most important thing in a photograph is the mood, it's the feeling. So we can get... Uh, you know, bogged down and, you know, okay, what lens should I use? What aperture should I use? What <clears throat> what shutter speed should I use? You know, all this other stuff. But, and if you do that, you forget about the most, like I said, the most important thing in the picture, which is the mood, which is the feeling. And, and the pictures that you like uh, and the pictures that your listeners like, you know, they like them because of that mood and, not, and the feeling, not because, oh man, that person used a 24 millimeter mm -hmm. lens, right? Speaking of gear, are you considering switching to mirrorless maybe one day? Well, right now so? I'm shooting with the Canon G5X. Mm -hmm. And I did a little test with this camera. I could send you a link. It's called, uh, I'm, I'm looking for it right here. Yeah, a creative storytelling with the Canon G5X. And this little camera is amazing. And what one of the things I like about it is, well, it can shoot raw files, but the zoom... Uh, lens range is 24 to 100, which is pretty close to my favorite lens, <clears throat> uh, the 24 to 105. So for for what it is for street shooting, for city shooting, uh, for indoor shooting, like you'll see in this post, which I'm sending you the link right now, it, it was perfect. But, you know, if I'm going to uh, Botswana, I'm not going to, you know, leave my Canon 5D, uh, 5DS, you know, back home. Sure. Okay, so uh, one more thing is uh, if people want to come to your workshops, do you have a, what, what are the next ones? Do you have any 
openings there? Any spots? Sure, I have a lot of workshops. If they go to ricksalmon.com, they'll see them. Uh, Actually, uh, Botswana and South Africa sold out, but we're going to Iceland later on this Mm -hmm. year, uh, which is one of my favorite places to photograph, which is why I go there uh, every year. And we have some other sh- uh, workshops in uh, the Tetons. But while we were speaking, I sent the link to your website to my wife, who's in the next office. I said, we might do a workshop with you in 2017. And she wrote back in capital letters, yes, with a big exclamation mark. <laughs> so, you know, we should definitely keep in touch and see what we could do uh, do on that, my friend. Yeah, I would love, um, I would like to thank you very much for uh, being with us today and uh, give us Lots of uh, useful information and uh, great suggestions that people will be able to to act on in their travels and so on. So uh, thanks again. Uh, all the best. Just where people can go and find you, uh, your website. Yep, just ricksalmon.com. It's S-A-M-M-O-N. It sounds like the fish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and they have great fish. You know, we were talking about Sicily before. Man, oh, man, don't they have great seafood out there? Yeah, no salmon, but yeah. Otherwise. No, no sap. <laughs> sea no bass, sap. Uh, that's typical, or other uh, swordfish. Swordfish and, and cl- tuna are very Clams. typical yeah, so Mediterranean fishes that are just very tasty. I had the best, the best linguine and clam sauce that I've ever mm-hmm. had in my life out there with these little baby clams. So if you're coming to Sicily or Italy in the future, we'll definitely meet up. It will oh. be a great pleasure and honor to, to go out and shoot with you. Well, listen, thank you so much for having me on your show. You're a great interviewer, and good luck with your podcast. And, uh, you know, like uh, like I said before, I hope we can do something in 2017. Yep, definitely. Okay, goodbye. Take care. Take care, my friend.